We are um, going to look at a pretty tricky story about a botched mission in the Old Testament. And uh, as we look at this story, it is going to remind us of a pretty incredible truth. Um, Whoever you are, whether you realize it or not, you are building your life on something. And hear me out. You are either building your life on the God of the Bible... Or you are building your life on something that is going to eventually let you down. You are building your life on something that is not going to be able to hold you up. Especially when you walk through the darkest valleys of your life. What we want to do this morning is ask the question, which side am I building my life on? Now that sounds like an intense thing to say coming out of the gates. I'm just trying to tell you what the story we're about to look at is about. You can feel free to turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. That's where we're going to be here in a few moments, 2 Kings uh, chapter 3. But I just want to set the stage. Uh, the events we're about to look at happen in real time and real history, about eight to 900 years before Jesus Christ showed up on the scene. Um, we are going to do a little bit of church geography uh, together for the benefit of this story. At the time, uh, the Jews, God's chosen people, were divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel up in the north, as you can see, and directly to itself, the kingdom of Judah. Now, those two kingdoms uh, had tension at times, uh, but this was a time of peace. Uh, They were getting along. They were really friendly. In fact, they're about to find cause to be a little more friendly still. Up in the north, in the kingdom of Israel, uh, seated on the throne was a uh, gentleman king by the name of Joram. Joram. Uh, Joram had a single claim to fame and he hated his claim to fame. His claim to fame was the fact that he was the son of the world's most evil king in Israel's entire history. A man by the name of Ahab and he was the son of his Cruella DeVille, wife, a woman by the name of Jezebel. These two did some scary stuff. One of the primary things they did was they forced God's people to worship a fake God by the name of Baal. Who demanded that among other things they would sacrifice their children to keep him happy. So Joram comes into power, he sits on the throne, and he's a little bit better than his dad, but not by much. One of the first things he does is he takes down one of the altars that was used to sacrifice to Baal. And he moves that thing out of the way. And people start to cheer like, maybe he's a good king. Um, But he doesn't remove this particular stone altar because he gives a lick what God could think. He moves the stone altar because he doesn't want there to be any trace of his father's leadership and legacy. Like I said, his claim to fame was one he hated. And it was the fact that, oh, you're Ahab's kid. He was driven crazy by that. He wanted to start his own legacy. So one of the things he did was he started to remove any sign of anything his dad had done. Because I'm the man now. I'm the king. And I'm scary awesome too. And I'm going to prove it to everybody. Stop comparing me to my 
So I just wanted to introduce you to, uh, to Joram, the, the king of insecurity, because the rest of the story is going to make some sense in light of who this particular guy was. All right. Verse number four. Um, this is Second Kings chapter three. We're going to start reading at verse number four. Here's what it says. Now, Mesha, the king of Moab, this guy raised sheep. And he had to pay the king of Israel some hefty tax. A hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. That is daunting. That will cripple any economy and will keep you from being able to move forward or thrive in any way. This guy would have been stuck on account of this hefty tax he had to pay to the king up north. But verse 5. After Ahab died... The king of Moab, Mesha, he rebelled against the king of Israel. And the story starts to get really interesting. Hey, check out. Uh, let's do some uh, church geography together. Uh, Mesha in Moab, as you can see, which is located uh, the southeast tip of the kingdom of Israel. This guy, he decides of all things. Yeah. That kid ain't his daddy. We're not scared of him. Plus, I heard his army is getting kind of soft. And so in this major act of defection and defiance, Mesha just decides, yeah, I'm not paying that little boy anymore. What's he going to do? Call his dad? man. Verse number six. So at that time, King Joram up in the north set out from Samaria, and he mobilized all of Israel. Oh, Mesha, you done messed up. Now, you touched a nerve. Joram, his deepest insecurity, just got uber-triggered so much that he decides he's going to mandate the entire nation to go to war against this guy. Mesha. Mesha would never have done this to my dad. I don't know, by the way, if I mentioned that you are either building your life on the God of the Bible or something that will let you down. And as I was reading this story, it occurred to me, it stirred me afresh that for many of us, just like Joram, we've chosen to build our lives on the foundation of pride. We've decided I'm not going to build my life on the foundation of the God of the Bible. I'm going to build my life on the foundation of pride. That is a scary foundation, by the way, to build your life on. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit goes before a fall. But more than that, James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Some of us, like Joram, are choosing to build our lives on the foundation of pride. Now, now, you would never, ever say that. 
You would never. In fact, when I say that, you're like, I don't even know what that means. You would never say, I am choosing and declaring hereby to establish and build my life on the foundation of pride. You would never say that, but hear me out. If there is any area in your life in which you are on a mission motivated by a desire to prove someone wrong or pay someone back, you are building on a foundation of pride. If there is any area of your life that is driven by this desire to prove someone wrong or to pay someone back like Joram, you are building on a foundation of pride. My dad said, I would never make it. Watch me. And now your life is driven by this desire to shut your father's mouth. He's not even around anymore. My parents always acted like my sister was the special one. And I'm going to spend the energies of my life showing them. Wrong bet, wrong choice. I'm that person. Oh, my haters, they told me, they laughed at me when I said, I'm going to be a millionaire by 50. And so I don't care how many people I take with me to war. I don't care how many people I hurt in the process. I am going to prove my haters wrong by becoming a millionaire ASAP. Watch my 85 hour a week works. Mm. Oh, yeah. My ex left and thought that it would absolutely devastate me and it would hurt me. Oh, no. Watch. I'm going to prove that I'm better without that person. And I don't even care about any of that. All oh, the revenge body this summer is going to be fire. Jim, here I come. It's never something we set out to do and say, I'm going to build my life on pride. We just start to move in a direction, maybe even unaware of the fact that we are being motivated by a desire to pay someone back or prove someone wrong. That is building on a foundation of pride. And how many of you know God always opposes the proud? Whatever my life is chasing built on that foundation... Is moving, it's playing chicken with the God of the universe. Which is exactly what Joram is doing. And this is hilarious. And by hilarious, I mean ridiculous. All right, verse number seven. King Joram up in the north, he also um, sent this WhatsApp message uh, to Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah in the south, because WhatsApp is just better for international communication. Um, and he said, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go to war with me to fight against Moab? And Jehoshaphat responds, I will go with you. He replied, I'm as you are, my people as your people. My horses is your horses. Because that's how ridiculous the whole pride game tends to be. <laughs> I'm not threatened by anybody. 
I'm a secure and strong man. Jehoshaphat, help a brother out, man. Um, can you help me prove how strong I am? That's ridiculous, right? It's proving the very thing that he's trying to debunk. That is not his dad. It's so ridiculous. I don't care about them. I'm fine without them. I'm never forgiving them. I don't care. Which is why I'm always talking about them. All the time. Which is why I'm spending so much energy just scrolling their social media. Just hoping I find a zit. Because man, I don't care about them. Mm Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Like you think about the way it works. It is so so absurd. I am so strong and secure. Right guys? Right? Right? I'm right. They're wrong. Right? I mean, come on. Joram? Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat? Joram. Now can you please affirm that? And we're not even aware of the ridiculousness. Except the people around you can usually tell. Like, oh my gosh. This is ridiculous. Well, you are building your life on one foundation or another. And for many of us, it is on the blinding foundation of pride. Verse number eight. <laughs> Just gets more ridiculous. I, by, uh, uh, by what uh, route should we attack? Joram asked. And Jehoshaphat answers, ah, through the desert of Edom. This is absurd. Um, Joram <laughs> says, I've not thought through how this is actually going to play out. Let's go! Um, which way should we go? What do you think? He has no idea. This is pride. You have not thought through the implications of how your pursuit to prove your dad wrong is going to affect your kids. You've not taken the time to think, okay, let's say I pay them back, then they pay me back, and then we pay each other back, and everyone's paying each other back. Like, where does this story end up? I don't know, but let's go. He's not thought about this in any real way. (laughs) And Jehoshaphat says, let's go through the desert. Yeah, it's so blinding. Let's take thousands and thousands of unprepared and untrained people and hundreds and hundreds of animals through the dry and the hilly desert. Yeah, that sounds good. Pride. And that's when you surround yourself, by the way, with ridiculous people. You're going to pay her back? Yeah, good. Let's do that. Let's just try and destroy their lives and see if they can destroy their lives. And let's just, if there's any area of your life motivated by desire to prove someone wrong, pay someone back, you are choosing to build on the blinding foundation of pride. Verse number nine. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and they picked up the king of Edom who was souther than Judah along the way. Because Joram's the man and is so strong. So he takes two other kings and their nations for this fight. After a roundabout, which is a polite translation of the world, just an absolutely chaotic march of seven days, 
things got dark. The army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. So kings dumb, dumber, and dumbest over here. They get their people so lost that they eventually run out of water in the desert. This is bad. Within hours, they are going to start to feel the effects of dehydration. And within a couple of days, they are going to start to die very painful deaths. Listen, pride will destroy your life and the lives of the people that you care about. The quest to prove someone wrong or pay someone back is going to destroy the things around you. Verse number 10. What? exclaimed Joram, the king of Israel. Has the Lord, the God of the Bible, called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? This is hilarious. And also, this once again is such a reminder of us. We make our best plans and we pursue our greatest goals. And then the moment we run into trouble, we get uber religious. Oh God, why do you let bad things happen to good people like me? God, you're going to do me like this? That's why I'm so angry at God. I had a goal. I had an agenda. And I pursued it. And then it just it didn't work out. God, how could you do this to me? And oh, by the way, the people in the church start to apologize for God. Like, oh yeah, maybe because. like uh, It's ridiculous. But we do this all the time. Pride has a list of ways that we just felt abandoned in the valley of distress by God. But never has a list of ways that we didn't even think that we should involve him when we started out on this mission. If you are chasing a dream, you are chasing a goal that you have never submitted to God. You are building your life on the foundation of pride. You are building your life on something that's going to let you down. If we say, are you building your life on pride? I don't think so. If you are building anything or pursuing anything that you have never been willing to surrender to God or invite him to speak into, you are building on a shaky foundation. If there is any area of your life you are not willing to lay at God's feet. Why? Because you're afraid he might say no to your plans. He might say no to your dreams. He might say no to your payback strategy. I cannot run the risk that God might say no to my plans. So mm -mm, I'm scared he might say no. So I'm not bringing that to him. That is a foundation of pride in which you are declaring I know better what's best for my life. And you, God, you do not. If you say no to me, you are going to be wrong. So I'm not even bringing this thing to you. 
That's built on pride. And then things go wrong and we get super religious. We're like, oh, oh God, my God, I need you. Oh God, my God, I need you now. Which is exactly what Joram does. It is kind of amusing and a reminder of us. And by the way, if God opposes the proud, why am I even surprised if it feels like my plans are being frustrated? Eventually, um, this deadly desert situation becomes so desperate uh, that these three kings go looking for anyone who knows the God that the three of them believe is able to get them out of this mess. It's funny. In the dire moments, they all agree there's only one God we know of that can get us out of this. So enter our guy, Elisha. They find him, and he is a mood as always. Super spicy as ever. Oh, check this out. Verse number three. Elisha saw them coming, and he went after Joram, the king of Israel. Um, Why do you want to involve me? He says. Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Ouch! You are choosing to build your life on something. Um, You better make sure it is something that can hold you up in the deepest and darkest valleys of desperation. Elisha asks, where are your gods now? Where are the gods you chose over the God of the Bible when everything was good? You've destroyed so many things. You've deceived so many people chasing after those gods. Why are you coming to me now? By the way, I love Elisha's attitude. I'm not endorsing it. I am not recommending it. I want my teenagers to hear that. I am just saying, man, what an incredible reminder about who God is. I love this reminder. Like, um, God's good. God's chilling. He's not struggling with a crisis of any kind, identity or any other. God is not experiencing some dose of insecurity where he needs a shot in the arm. Like God is fine. I thought that was such a great reminder. Because sometimes I think in the church, in an attempt to offer hope to people, we will make God sound like a desperate deity who should just be so lucky if anybody just chooses to come to church and maybe give God a chance. If this was the church, if Elisha was the church, it would have been the king of Israel is interested in God. Stop everything. Do you know how huge a first round draft pick this would be for the kingdom? Oh God, this would make you look 
so good. Everybody roll out the red carpet. The king is here. The king is here. And Elisha's like, what are you doing here, bro? God's good. And I'm just saying that to some of y'all. We're glad you're here, but don't think by any stretch of the imagination you showing up to church or coming to God is doing him any favors. It is in your best interest to come and build your life on the foundation of God. He's good. Sometimes we make Elisha's like, "Mm mm-mm, go see your gods. God is not desperate for any of us to do him any favors. And Elisha brilliantly reminds us of that. And then the king says, no. Verse 13, because it was the Lord, not my gods, who called us three kings of Orient are together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. <laughs> Elisha's fed up. He, oh, this guy. Okay. Um, I swear. This is the language Elisha's used. I swear. As surely as the Lord lives, I'm telling you the truth. Almighty God, help me somebody. Whom I serve. He said, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. I would not pay any attention to you, sir, King Joram. Wow. And we need to know, and neither will God. If you show up in your moment of desperation... Believing God is at fault and you are doing him a favor? Mm -mm. That is never the way to show up in your time of desperate need. He will oppose your pride. If you show up in his presence in your most critical of moments and you are throwing accusations, it is your fault. You're the one who did this. And you need to prove to me that you are worth my time and you are worth my faith somehow. God's response will be similar to Elisha's. You don't have to come to God perfectly, but you need to come with humility. And willingness. My attempt to do things my way has failed. My attempts to live life on my own terms has led to this valley of misery. I am desperate for you, God, to help me. And there's nothing that I can do. I went after payback. I went after payback. And uh, because of what they did to me. And I'm in this desert of anger. I'm always angry. And the bitterness won't stop. And it's destroying me. And I need your help. Humility. I went after pleasure to prove that the church and my parents' rules were ridiculous. And now I'm stuck. And there is, there's nothing I can do in the, the wake of the sandstorm of addiction. I was going to keep up this image of success because I was going to be a millionaire by a certain age. And now I'm sinking in the quicksand of debt. God, I'm so sorry. I need you now. There is nothing I can do. Humility. 
I've lived pursuing the springs of, 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 of happiness, pleasure, and power, and my soul is dehydrating. There is no joy. There is no peace. I am restless. I am unsatisfied. And so I'm coming to you, God, and saying, help. Humility. And by the way, some of you are there this morning. You have built life on the foundation of pride and you have chased payback and you've chased trying to impress people and you have, you have chased trying to prove people wrong and to prove yourself impressive and you are living in this desert storm of dehydrating misery and it's just not working. And even as I'm speaking, the spirit of God is stirring and you know it's you. You are stuck in a place of addiction and you cannot get out. You are stuck in a a cycle of misery and sadness and emptiness and there is nothing that you can do and you know it and you are ready to say, God, help me. There is nothing that I can do. Elijah asks for some worship music to be played um, in his presence and while the music is playing, God speaks to him and reveals what Elijah could not have known otherwise. All right, here's what it says. And he said, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. Come on. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. Because that's the kind of God he is. He loves to miraculously meet us even in the messes of our own making. If we are willing to be humble enough to say help. Someone came to church to hear that. Despite what you might have heard about God, he is so good. And no matter how far you've gone, no matter how big the mess you've made, no matter how stuck you are in the desert of life, he is just a prayer away and he can do what no other can do. It is never too late to say, I want to build my life on the foundation that doesn't shake. And come on, what other God calls the impossible easy? I love that. Like, this is easy for God. Did he break a sweat? No. God tells Elisha, I will fill this dry desert valley with water, and I don't need wind, and I don't need rain to do it. You and your people and your animals will drink to your fill, and you won't be able to explain this naturally, except that God showed up in our deepest and most desperate time when we cried out to him in Humility, And lo and behold, verse 20, the next morning, about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, there it was. Water flowing in the direction of Edom and the land was filled with water because he's the only one who can deliver on everything he says and deliver everything that you need. The kings go in, they live and they win the victory. An amazing story of the God of the Bible flooding an empty desert with water and bringing refreshing and bringing hope.
And for some of us, that's the offer on the table. Are you dried up from standing and building on a foundation that doesn't bring life? And are you humbly willing to say, help? We are going to celebrate some baptisms. And the baptisms we're going to celebrate are reflective of people who have stood and built on the foundation that Jesus Christ has laid. The foundation of God. And he has cleansed them with a flood of forgiveness. And he's broken their chains with a wave of freedom. And he's willing to do the same for you. And even as they come out of the water, may the question be asked of you. Has the flood of heaven washed over your soul? To make you clean and bring you onto the firm foundation that is never, ever shaken. So Father, I pray even now that you would do your work, your miraculous work of stirring hearts and inviting people to yourself. I pray that no person in this room who knows that your spirit is calling them away from emptiness and the desert valley into freedom and fullness and flourishing, I pray that every single one will humbly say, help, I need you, and experience what it's like for you to show up, whether they're doing it for the first time or they're coming back to you afresh. And now as we celebrate the lives you miraculously transformed, may we do it with joy and humility recognizing you are the only one who can bring life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.